The following sermon was preached at Selma Community Church, a church in Jefferson City that exists to build communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God by connecting people to Christ and community. More information, you can find it at www.somajc.org. First of all, good morning and, and welcome to Selma. Uh, Pastor John is obviously not here this morning. He's preaching at First Baptist Church in Forsyth, Missouri. Uh, that's two and a half, three hours kind of south of us down in that Branson, Springfield area. Uh, but while he's gone today, we're going to continue um, our study in the sermon series called Things Jesus Never Said. And this morning, we're going to look at go and do what makes you happy. A couple of weeks ago, I guess, during Gospel Community, I shared with some of you um, that I'm a product of what is known as the baby boomer generation. Baby boomers, by definition, are those of us that were born between the years of 1946 and 1964. So where did this generational name come from? Let me give you a small hint as I read off some statistics about my generation. In 1947, 3.8 million babies were born. 1952, 3.9 million babies. And more than 4 million babies each year from 1954 until 1964 were born. So do you kind of get the hint where baby boomers got the name from? Overall, in that time span of um, oh, approximately 19 years, I guess, 76.4 million baby boomers had entered the world in the United States alone. Now, this boomer generation is ideally commonly split into like two different groups. Uh, those born between 46 and 1955 are called the early boomers or the leading edge boomers. And those of us born between 1956 and 1964 are the late boomers, not bloomers, late boomers, or the trailing edge boomers. So during the mid-1960s, 62, 3, 4, somewhere in that area, this first group of boomers reached late teens, early adulthood, and they began a countercultural movement uh, that developed and basically rejected the mores of the mainstream American life. This movement started primarily in opposition to the Vietnam War, but quickly found another safe haven in many other things. The guiding characteristics and beliefs of this hippie movement were centered around harmony with nature, communal living, artistic experimentation in music, sexual experimentation, and the widespread use of recreational drugs. With little to no use or regard for any civil or social laws, this group lived their lives based on two primary mantras, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and make love, not war. Hippie translation, go and do what makes you happy. I'm telling you all of this to lead into our scripture reference for this morning, as many past people and, and people of current times have misinterpreted the scripture we're about to get into this morning to mean something that Jesus never said. 
Please open your Bibles or use your Bible apps, whatever you happen to have, uh, to the book of John, chapter 8, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. If you need a Bible, there should be a black Bible somewhere around you uh, on the chairs there. Uh, if you don't have one, feel free to take one of those home with you. All we ask that you do is to open it up and read it. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, John 8 should be found on page 840. And once you find our scripture passage for this morning, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And in verse 7 it says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, just um, thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that as we gather here today, Lord, that you will take away all of our concerns and our worries. Lord, give us a, a mind to hear your word. Lord, give us a heart to understand what it is that you would have for us to know today. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this service. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated now. Some early Christians like St. Augustine and St. Ambrose um, didn't want to use this scripture reference in many of their writings because they thought it made Jesus appear to approve of the sexual immorality or at the very least not take it really seriously. Many people today still use these same scriptures to justify their own immoral actions. They try to excuse or minimalize their actions by saying that Jesus wasn't all that concerned about the sin of the woman that had been brought before him. They say he essentially told the woman, move on, forget about it, no one's here to condemn you, go and just don't do it again. I want us to take a closer look at our scripture today and find out what Jesus really did have to say about this matter. As our passage opens up this morning, we find Jesus doing what Jesus does, teaching others in the synagogue. 
And we also find the Pharisees doing what the Pharisees did, trying to find something that they could bring against Jesus, trying to trip him up, trying to catch him in some kind of mistake, all so that they could bring some kind of charge against him. They not only wanted to trip him up, but they wanted to do it publicly so they could really embarrass him and the woman when everything comes to fruition here. Look again with me, if you will, at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, the Pharisees are bringing a woman to Jesus that they say was caught in adultery. Now, verse 4 truly reveals the hand that the Pharisees are trying to play here. They say to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute. The last time I heard or knew anything about this sin, the crime of adultery, it required both a man and a woman. So why did the Pharisees bring just the woman before Jesus? Did the man run away? Did he escape before they could catch him? I'm telling you, even if this woman was guilty of the crime of adultery, several things in this reference point to the fact that she was set up. Let's move on. Verse 5, we find, verse 5, I'm sorry, we find the Pharisees reciting the law to Jesus as if he didn't already know the law. They quoted parts of the Mosaic law that required them to stone a woman found guilty of adultery. And then we see them moving in for the kill on the real target of this whole fiasco, and that was Jesus. I can just see them now rubbing their hands together, thinking to themselves, we've got him now. The Pharisees, you see, have carefully prepared their gotcha question. Teacher, what do you say we should do? Now, before we look at Jesus' response, I want us to take a deeper dive into this Mosaic law that the Pharisees are trying to invoke here, or at least partially trying to invoke. And it starts with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. Law given by God to Moses. Seventh commandment, Moses went up to Mount Sinai, clearly establishes adultery as a sin against a holy God. Now I want us to look at Leviticus 20, verse 10, and it shows the penalty that must be paid for the sin of adultery. And it says in verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Scripture says both the woman and the man were to be put to death. But you see, in our reference here, no man was brought forth by the Pharisees, only the woman. So now I want to take a look at the evidence that was needed in order to convict somebody of this crime. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7. And verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. 
the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This law clearly establishes in order to convict somebody of capital punishment, in this event, stoning that woman, it would require the evidence of at least two witnesses, preferably three. Now, these witnesses would have had to have actually seen the act of adultery being committed firsthand. It couldn't be something that these witnesses might have suspected based on how these people were acting afterwards. It could not have been evidence uh, that they got wind of through the good old boy grapevine. Mosaic law required that this had to be firsthand knowledge, meaning the witnesses would have had to have seen the act of adultery being committed. Now think with me logically for just a minute. How many people now or even back in biblical times do you think are going to commit any crime much less adultery if somebody is standing there watching them so how could there have been a first hand witness do you kind of see how all of this is looking a little bit fishy looking a little bit trumped up against this woman and it looks to me like these Pharisees are obviously out to get her but she's not the one they're really after. They're much more interested in taking down Jesus. This woman is just a pawn in their great big chess game that they keep playing with Jesus. All of this is nothing more than a setup on the part of the Pharisees. They apply parts of the law that suits their cause and conveniently leave out the essential elements to make their case. So, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? What do you have to say about all of this that's going on? Does this sound familiar? This is not Jesus' first rodeo with these Pharisees and this type of questioning. Uh, remember when they cornered Jesus and asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Do you remember what his response was then? They really thought, mm, we've got him now. We've got him between a rock and a hard place. But remember what Jesus' response was? Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And the Pharisees just melted. And now we're seeing the same thing happening with their questioning of Jesus and this woman. What do you have to say about all of this, they ask him. And verse 6 tells us they said all of this to test him, to try and catch him on something so they could bring charges against him. And once again, it seems as though the Pharisees have Jesus right where they want him. No matter how he answers this question, it seems like he has no way out. If he says, let her go, then he's violating the Mosaic law. If he says, go ahead with the stoning, he's violating Roman law. Because remember, the Romans forbid the Jews from carrying out any type of stoning or executioning on their own. 
Jesus' initial reaction to their line of questioning is something that has led to much speculation by as many people that have read these scriptures. Scripture tells us his reaction, his initial reaction to their question wasn't to answer. It was simply that it says Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Almost as if Jesus was totally ignoring them. He just bent down without saying a word and wrote in the dirt. And it's this that is the source of the speculation. Scripture does not tell us what he wrote, if he wrote anything at all. The word used for wrote here could also mean to draw. So some speculate that Jesus just doodled something on the ground. Others think that Jesus wrote out the names of the accusers. Still other authors claim that Jesus was writing out the sentence that was to be applied to the woman. Now, again, the Greek word that is normally used for to write is graphene. But the word used in this scripture, in this instance, is katagraphene, which means to write down a record against someone. All of this makes for great conversation if you've got 30 or 40 minutes to do nothing but just talk about these kinds of things. But that's all it is, is great conversation. All pure speculation because there's no biblical proof as to what Jesus was doing when he knelt down and wrote in the dirt. And that's really not the point. The point is what Jesus did next that set the Pharisees on their heels. In verse 7, it says, Jesus stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Remember the law? The evidence necessary to convict someone who was to be put to death required at least two witnesses, preferably three. And then upon conviction... Those same two witnesses or three witnesses would be required to throw the first stone. Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 says, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. Jesus did not say, we're not going to execute this woman. What Jesus did say was that if we're going to execute this woman, we're going to do it right. We're going to follow the law. And when the Pharisees heard Jesus' response directed at them, Scripture tells us that one by one, they all went away. And that left Jesus alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus turned, and his question to the woman was simply, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replied, No one, Lord. He said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus didn't tell her, It's okay. They're all gone. Go on your merry way now. He didn't tell her to keep on doing whatever makes you happy. In that moment, Jesus showed compassion and love for the sinner and contempt for the sin. Sound familiar? Love the person, but hate the sinner, hate the sin. 
John 12, 47 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus did not excuse what had been done. First, he told her, go. In other words, don't sit around here wallowing and moping around in your sin. Repent and move on. And I think we see a matter of repentance here when her response was, no one, Lord. She replied to Jesus as Lord. And then he told her, go and sin no more. So repent and sin no more. Jesus did not cover up the fact of what she had done was a sin. He acknowledged the act as the sin that it was and then told her to sin more, no more. Don't do it again. Go and do what makes you happy or reverse. If it doesn't make you feel good, don't do it, maybe. And as we've just seen, this is not something that Jesus ever said and is totally not the counsel that some think that Jesus was giving to this woman caught in adultery by these Pharisees. So does Jesus not want us to be happy? Some would surmise that, I guess. What are you supposed to do with these emotions and feelings that well up inside of you? All of us have experienced these feelings and emotions at some time or another. It, it, it's often like riding a roller coaster. One minute you're up, the next minute you're down. You go from the hilltops to the valleys in one fell swoop. They make you feel happy one minute and then sad and despondent the next. So as Christians, should we try to rid ourselves of these emotions and feelings? Listen to what one writer says about them. God gives us the wonderful gift of emotions to add color to our life. He is a feeling God, and those made in his image are not to be like robots. But while feelings and emotions are wonderful servants, they are terrible gods. When they flow ungoverned by God's spirit and God's reality, they make us threats both to others and to ourselves. So we can look at our emotions and our feelings, and we should look at our emotions and feelings as gifts from a good and gracious God. But did you catch what the author said right there at the tail end? Emotions and feelings ungoverned by God's spirit makes us threats, not only to ourselves, but to others as well. There are numerous examples throughout the Bible of where people let their strong feelings and emotions sort of well up inside of them and kind of take over. It took them down paths that they never intended to go down and ended up in situations that did not end well for any of them. So this morning, I want us to take a quick look at a couple of those examples in the Bible. We don't have to go very far to find the first example. And if you will, follow along with me as I read from the third chapter of Genesis. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 4 
and we're going to find ourselves in the Garden of Eden in the middle of a conversation between Eve and the serpent. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 7. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve, they both let their emotions and feelings drive them to make decisions that didn't turn out so well for them. Their feelings of happiness from all that God had given them in the garden to take care of and to enjoy. Their feelings of joy from the pleasure they received from the sheer beauty and wonder of all of God's creations there in the garden. They saw their emotions quickly turn from that joy and happiness to feelings of curiosity, then discontentment, and finally to despair over the only thing in the whole entire garden that God told them to stay away from. They gave in to their fleshly feelings and emotions, obviously spurred on by Satan for sure, that ultimately led them to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And verse 7 tells us immediately their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they covered themselves up. And then later on in verse 8, we find both Adam and Eve hiding themselves from the presence of God as if that's even possible. What a roller coaster ride. One minute, they're in the garden, talking back and forth with God every morning, every evening, every noon, enjoying all that God had given them, all the happiness and joy they must have been feeling from this paradise and the next minute, those emotions have turned to fear and to shame. They find themselves in that same garden, hiding from the very God that created them. All because they allowed their feelings and their emotions, tendencies that all of us, at some point or another, think we have to pursue to make us happy. All of that went unchecked by the word of God and led to their demise. Let's take another look, another example at someone uh, that let their emotions get out of hand and that turned into a driving force in their life. Turn with me if you will, or you can follow along as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbi. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
David, king of all of Israel, known as a man after God's own heart. Scripture tells us one afternoon he decides to go up on the rooftop of his house, his palace there in Jerusalem. And I can just see him standing there, maybe hands on his hip, kind of chest poked out, kind of proud, looking out over all of Jerusalem, looking at all the things that God had provided for him. And then lo and behold, David catches a glimpse of a beautiful woman across the way taking a bath. And we all know how that ended up, and it did not end well for David or anyone else involved in that entire situation. The downward spiral for David had begun. He let his emotions and feelings take over and ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba. And that spiral continued when David starts telling lies to cover up the affair that he had had with her. And when all of that didn't work out as David had planned, he had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. Another set of intricate lies that ended in the outright murder of Uriah, her husband. And that wasn't the end of this whole debacle. Later, the child born out of that affair between David and Bathsheba dies. Again, another example of the disastrous results that come about when we let our flesh, our emotions, and our feelings go uncontrolled and unchecked. They become the guiding and driving forces in our lives. So what are we supposed to do with all these emotions and feelings? God gave them to us as a precious gift. So how do we go about keeping them in check and not letting them be the driving force in our lives? The first thing I want to offer up to you is we should walk in faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. The New Life version of that same scripture reads like this. It says, Our life is lived by faith. We do not live by what we see in front of us. Paul was writing his second letter to the church at Corinth, and he's telling them that we are to live our lives by faith. Not by sight, not by those things that we can see and feel and touch. We should not live by how we feel about something or how something makes us feel about ourselves. It's too easy, way too easy to let those emotions and those feelings guide us into actions that are not in our best interest. Walking by faith means that we trust God in everything that we do. Walking by faith means that we allow the Holy Spirit and God's word to lead our actions instead of what Proverbs 3, 5 says, leaning on our own understanding. Or simply put, trusting in our emotions and our feelings. Walking by faith and leaning on that faith when we face troubling situations or issues in our lives allows us to harness or check those emotions before we're able to act on them and do something foolish. Our faith keeps our feelings in check. If we lean on that faith, if we learn to walk by faith, it is our faith then that becomes the driving force in our lives not our feelings and emotions. 
The second thing I would offer up to you is we must walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 18, Paul writing in here again says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Paul tells the Galatians that walking in the spirit will not allow you to give in to the desires of the flesh. So what does it mean to walk in the spirit? As Christians, we've been promised a helper. John 14, 16 says, this is Jesus, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will come and live in the hearts of every Christian forever. And what does scripture tell us that the Spirit's job is? To be our helper. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to understand things that are hard for us to understand. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to pray and the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us defeat and conquer all these fleshly emotions and feelings that well up inside of us from time to time. I read an analogy uh, this week that made a lot of sense to me uh, and kind of gave me a different perspective on how to think about walking in the Spirit. Um, each one of you, if you would, take out your cell phones. It's okay. If I tell you you can take out your phone, it's okay to take it out. This cell phone is probably one of the most powerful and useful tools that you'll ever have in your hands. With this phone, the information of the world, right here at my fingertips. But there's one key, one key factor that makes this phone the useful and powerful tool that it is. In order for me to use this phone, it either has to be plugged in with a charger to an outlet, or it has to be charged up. Otherwise, if this phone is dead, it's, it's basically a one or two pound uh, box of metal and plastic that is basically useless. All of you have picked up your phone and it's dead. What, what good is it to you? causes a lot of emotional disturbance, I guess. Other than that, it, it's nothing. And that's much the same way, if you think about it, the relationship between us and the Holy Spirit. If we're not plugged in to the Holy Spirit, or we're not charged up, we're just like those phones that are dead. So here are three things that will help us stay plugged in to the Holy Spirit. The first one is pray. You can't walk in the Spirit if you don't pray. This prayer life now, it's got to be real. you got to get plugged in. It can't just be a box you check off every day that so you can show somebody and say, I've done my religious duty for the day, prayer. Your prayer life must be like a hotline to the Holy Spirit. When you get plugged into the Holy Spirit on that level, your prayer life 
empowers you to overcome many of those struggles you're going to face with your feelings and emotions. The second thing we can do to walk in the Spirit is read the Word. You must commit to reading the Word on a regular basis. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, God's word gives us wisdom to know what's right and what's wrong and helps us to keep our emotions and our feelings in check because we have something that we know is right that we can balance it against. And the third thing is to obey. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we pray but do not follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, what good is prayer done us? If we read God's word, but we don't act on what we read, what good is reading God's word done us? We must be obedient to the word. We must put our prayer life and God's word into action in our own lives. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions, checking the boxes, and we're soon going to find ourselves right back to allowing the emotions and the feelings that we conjure up to run our lives. And finally, the third thing that we must do is walk, seeking the things of God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 tells us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So how do we go about this seeking God stuff? Raise your hand if you've ever played hide-and-go-seek. Okay, that's just about everybody in the room. Just quick reminder of the rules of hide-and-go-seek. Let's say we've got ten people in here that want to play hide-and-go-seek. Nine of you are going to go off somewhere and hide. One of you is going to be designated as the seeker. After a given period of time, you count to 10, you count to 20. If you're a kid, you count to whatever you can count to, and then you go seek these people. If you really want to get an idea of what seeking means, hang around here on Thursday evenings after gospel community or after church on Sunday mornings and watch these kids play hide-and-go-seek. They're looking under chairs. They're looking under towels, tables, containers of Play-Doh, places that nobody could hide under. But they're seeking. They're honestly, earnestly seeking somebody. Now, let's apply that to how we seek after God. Are we just going to combine our seeking to praying, reading the Bible, or are we going to look under the chairs, under the tables? Are we going to look inside the Play-Doh jars? That's the type of seeking that we have got to do if we're going to walk seeking the things above. We must continually be seeking after God. 
And that's going to be our soul tattoo for today. Seeking after the things of God should not only be intentional, but it also should be intense. We need to be intentional in that we need to be continually seeking after the things of God. And we don't need to pursue it like a, oh, well, when I get around to it, attitude. It needs to be intense, just like those kids looking underneath the various objects in the room. So say it with me, if you will. Seeking after the things of God should not only be intentional, but it should also be intense. We're going to close this morning with a quote from one of the commentary authors that I wrote this week that I read about this week, and he said, the gospel of Christ is not an if-it-feels-good-do-it kind of religion. Its primary message about, it isn't a primary message about feeling good. It's about recognizing our wretched sin before a holy God, repenting, trusting Christ for forgiveness, and taking up a cross. That's what leads us to joy and meaning in life. In a minute, uh, our worship team uh, will come back up here and lead us in a time of response. But before they do, uh, I want to invite you to participate in um, our communion table this morning. This is something that we do almost every week. And to the Christian believer, this is a time of reflection a time of remembrance about what Jesus has done for us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. As you break off a piece of the bread, just remember the Bible tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, as he was gathered around the table with all of his disciples, he took that bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he told them, this is my body, which is broken for you. And later on during the Last Supper, and in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The juice is just a symbol of the blood that was spilled on the cross to pay the price for our sins. If you're a Christian and you know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and partake in the communion table with us. If you're not a Christian, you've never made that commitment, you've never asked Jesus into your life to be your Lord and your Savior, I ask that you just remain in your seat, find one of those black pew Bibles around you, turn to the front of it, and there's some, some readings and some prayer there. Read through those, please, if you will. If during this time of response, you have any questions, you need somebody to pray with, uh, you don't quite understand what it means to make Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Kevin and I both will be back there in the back. Please come find one of us. We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk whatever it is that you need to talk about. So pray with me if you will, please. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for your word today. Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, help us to apply what you have given to us today, Lord, to our lives so that we can reach out to others 
Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his willingness to take our sin on himself, Lord, and to die on that cross to pay the price for something that he didn't do and something that we couldn't do. Lord, thank you for his burial and most importantly for his resurrection, his conquering of death. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that hasn't made that commitment to you, that today would be that day. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will just take over now. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio of Soma Community Church located in Jefferson City. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for the content or alter it in any way without express written permission. For more information about Soma, please visit us at www.somajc.org.